0: trade, commerce, military and more. A tug of war over the waters of the Pacific Ocean. Whoever controls them controls the future.
1: So you really can't overstate what is at stake here.
0: In this special report, we delve into the waters of the Pacific to look at what happens if the Chinese regime gains the upper hand and how it impacts not just every American but the world. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. The preeminent Pacific power. That's the title the United States is used to holding. But now it could all be lost.
1: We would find ourselves actually defending America uh, from Hawaii. And if you play that out a little more, you're actually defending America from a lot closer to to the U.S. West Coast.
0: That's Grant Newsham, retired Marine Colonel and director of One Korea Network. He notes that it took many bloody battles in World War II to cement that title.
1: As hard as that is to believe, uh, particularly for somebody who's sort of growing up after World War II, uh, but we've had the upper hand where really Asia, the Pacific has been ours. Uh, we would finally uh, face an enemy, uh, face a situation where we would be on the defensive and from much closer uh, to American territory. And this would have a way of playing out in other parts of the world as well. But control of these
0: waters doesn't just have strategic implications. Alex Gray, senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council, points out.
2: If we've learned anything from the post-COVID supply chain uh, disruptions, It's just how critical US economic and commercial traffic from Asia to the West Coast and and from the West Coast distributed throughout the United States really is. Um, We continue to be reliant in so many ways on trade and commerce coming from not just China, but from Southeast Asia and from India. And so much of that is going to traverse through the Pacific and end up in West Coast ports.
0: Gray adds a big part of that has to do with our current economic
2: model. As long as that is our economic model, as long as we continue to, to have an economy that requires uh, cheap imports to, to fuel our, our, consumer, uh, our consumer spending habits, that's going to require a navy and a, a projection forces that can traverse the Pacific, keep the sea lanes open, and allow, uh, allow the engine of our economy to, to keep churning.
0: For now, the waters of the Pacific are the engine that drives our economy. That gives a lot of power to whoever controls those waters. Gray notes the one that has that power.
2: Has the ability to, to deny access or keep open access uh, is going to play a, a major role in determining the commercial future of the wider Pacific. And that's what the Chinese uh, partially want.
0: That ties into the Chinese Communist Party or CCP's goals of becoming the global hegemon. Gray notes when it comes to the Chinese regime.
2: They want to be a global power. Anyone who tells you that their ambitions are regional and they're confined to this, their near seas, I think, is, is not keeping up with... The reality of, of where we are uh, the chinese are building a fleet and are building uh, a global a global presence uh, with bases and, and access agreements that span the globe from greece to the middle east and everywhere in between uh, the, potentially on the atlantic now as for
0: what the ccp's goals mean for the u.s and allies
2: we need to understand this is a, a serious challenge to the American commercial and military uh, presence that we've taken for granted at least since the end of the Cold War, but, but really since 1945.
0: Nushin adds to understand the Chinese regime's current goals, sometimes it's important to take a look at history.
1: Uh, there's a huge political significance to the Chinese inroads into the Pacific Islands. If you think about it, because these have been uh, part of the map that has been historically uh, really Americans uh, since World War II. And what does it say uh, if China uh, gets in, uh, competes with us for influence and ultimately drives us out and you throw in the military uh, capability that they can put in place there? Uh, It certainly looks like they're the country that's on the rise and the Americans can't get their act together. And it's not just uh, Americans who notice this, but everyone else in the region will notice it and the world will notice it.
0: That means it's not just America that's at risk, but rather the world. Part of that risk is the shrinking global space as technology and weapons capability expand.
2: And so if we have a Chinese base or an access agreement in places like uh, one of the Micronesian Islands or in a place like Vanuatu or, or Papua New Guinea or the Solomon Islands. You get down the list of, of places, there's going to be a significant danger to the ability of the United States to, to operate freely and independently uh, in the Indo-Pacific. And, and that's a, a military threat and it's an economic threat.
0: The U.S. has been taking steps to shore up defenses. Vice President Kamala Harris recently spoke to Pacific Island leaders via video call. The message, while the U.S. failed to look after the islands in the past, that's changing. The U.S. has opened up two new embassies in Kiribati and Tonga. VP Harris also requested that Congress triple the funds going to the Pacific Islands to the tune of $600 million over the next decade. While experts agree those are good steps forward, they argue there's more that needs to be done to ensure the U.S. doesn't lose the Pacific to adversaries. Newsham says first up is attention.
1: Now there is more attention being paid to the Pacific Islands and to the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific in general, uh, than there has been for a good long while. For about 20 years, America was distracted uh, by Afghanistan, by Iraq, Uh, But now it's getting the attention it deserves, and and that's the real significance of it. And also, uh, there's a recognition that China really isn't our friend, Uh, although a lot of people haven't quite given up on the possibility that with just a little more effort, they might come to like us.
0: With the attention has come high-level visits. But Gray argues while that's a good first step, there needs to be more.
2: That's not the solution that uh, I get the sense they think it is. That's, uh, that's a nice way of, of stopping the bleeding.
0: Newsham adds, on top of the attention, there needs to be presence.
1: Put simply, if you look at U.S. strategy and uh, activities in the region, um, if you're not there, you're not interested. And there's been a tendency to think that if we just pitch up with a three or four star admiral or general and he meets the president or the chief of the whatever the military they've got. Uh, and then they have a nice tea and they go away, That well, that somehow has solidified our presence. That's not the case. The military does something similar where they're very active in the region, uh, our military, and they go and they put on an exercise, show up somewhere, you know, have a goodwill visit, and then they're gone. That's because when there's a
0: vacuum, it gets filled. If the U.S. isn't the one in the region, then who is?
1: Now, who is there all the time? the local Chinese businessmen, the Chinese shopkeepers, uh, the Chinese diplomats, uh, who are there in numbers just about everywhere, and they're very clever, they are effective. Uh, So the presence is really what matters. But as to why
0: presence is so important, Newsham adds it's offering alternatives.
1: So much of what Chinese influence uh, depends on is a vacuum. And by a vacuum, I mean there's nothing to challenge it. There's no alternative for many of these re- these countries, and they will tell you that. You know, you'll hear them sometimes say, "You know, look, we're not doing this by choice, but what other options do we have?" And that's where the Americans and the, the free nations need to provide them with some options. To
0: make that a reality, Gray lays out two steps. Firstly,
2: there should be an American embassy in every Pacific island. Um, we we have embassies in every country in Africa throughout Central Asia, we should have an embassy in every Pacific island.
0: Secondly, there's the COFA agreements. COFA stands for Compacts of Free Association. It's a deal the U.S. has with certain island nations, like the Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, and the Marshall Islands.
2: These are absolutely critical uh, economically, diplomatically, and militarily. These are special Relationship that we have with those three countries that allow us um, access militarily in exchange for some economic support and some uh, some political support. Those are uh, going, all three of those are going to need to be renewed in the next uh, next year year to two years.
0: But beyond that, there's still more that can be done. Gray says, for instance, expanding our partnerships in the region and having our National Guard play a bigger role.
2: The National Guard has partnerships with a number of militaries in the region. We should be expanding those as far as we possibly can. Uh, And we should not be outsourcing our relationship with individual islands to other countries. We, We love our Australian friends, we love our New Zealand friends, but we have to have individual bilateral relations with every country in the region.
0: Out of the 12 independent Pacific Island countries, the U.S. has embassies and less than half of them. Instead, the U.S. relies on allies like Australia and New Zealand to take care of the issue. Newsham notes.
1: We've got friends as well. We mentioned Taiwan, but the Japanese could be very useful in the region. They already are, uh, but there's more they could do. Uh, The South Koreans, the Indians, very effective, particularly on the economic front. Uh, The Australians as well. And getting these partners who have an interest in the region, who have a presence, who do things there, Put it together in a systematic campaign uh, campaign plan, and that would be a, a very useful challenge to what the Chinese have going.
0: But if steps aren't taken to boost presence and defenses in the area, experts
2: warn. It's going to have a chilling effect across the Pacific Islands, and it's going to play right into the Chinese hand.
1: As Newsham notes. Uh, but the presence really, really does matter.
0: One example that's played out is in the Solomon Islands.
2: Gray notes. We did not have an embassy for decades. We, uh, we have only recently announced that we intend to bring an embassy back. Um, that lack of presence and that decision decades ago to rely on Australia to represent the alliance position in the Solomons, I think has, has turned out to be a very, uh, very dangerous decision and, and hopefully we'll, we'll correct it. That's
0: because since then, the Chinese regime swooped in and made a security pact with the Solomon Islands.
2: If Solomon Islands uh, ends up with a dual-use facility or a permanent base or or some in-between hybrid model that gives the Chinese uh, access, it's going to be the most devastating uh, impact on the security of the first island chain going into the second island chain since World War II. Why is that?
0: Because for the Chinese regime, everything is what's known as dual use. There's a civilian use, but also a military use. So while one could argue the security pact is just for commercial use, it has darker shades of meaning too. Gray adds for those in the region.
2: It will be the greatest threat to Australian national security since 1945. Um, I, I don't think you can exaggerate how much of a danger it will be to uh, the alliance structure that the United States has built because, uh, put simply, it's going to sit astride Australia's sea lines of communication. It's going to have, uh, you look, it's a very short several-hour flight from the Northern Territory of Australia to Haniara. Um, There's a reason why thousands of Americans died in World War II fighting to keep Henderson Field uh, on Guadalcanal operative because the control of that uh, that island is absolutely critical for Australia's uh, outlet to the wider world.
0: Another concern is with the Solomon Islands and other potential bases in the Pacific. The Chinese regime could sidestep the first and second island chains. The first island chain stretches from Japan to Taiwan down to the Philippines and Malaysia effectively hemming in the Chinese regime from expanding out into the Pacific. The second island chain is in Oceania, the islands that stretch through Guam, Micronesia, down through Solomon Islands and Vanuatu, down towards Australia and New Zealand. Given the importance of these barriers, Gray notes
2: The strategic rationale for why the Pacific Islands matter for the United States is relatively clear and it's been consistent going back to the early years of American history. Uh, We fought multiple wars in the Pacific for this reason and and it's simple. If you want to get from uh, the West Coast and from Hawaii, whether it's commercial, economic shipping or it's, it's military you're gonna to have to tra- transverse the Pacific Islands. You're gonna to have to go across the Central Pacific and the North Pacific. You're gonna to have to go through the Micronesian Islands. Um, if you wanna to get to the Korean Peninsula, if you wanna to get to Taiwan, if you wanna access the markets of Southeast Asia, if you wanna resupply US forces in Korea, um, all of that requires unimpeded air and sea access through areas that that are within range uh, Today, missile range and aircraft range of major Pacific island.
0: With the historical significance of these waters, experts warn it's important now more than ever to make sure the waters stay free, free from the control of adversarial powers like the Chinese regime and free so that those who pay the ultimate price in fighting for their freedom won't have died in vain. As experts note, at stake isn't just our military might, but also our economy and our very way of life. Coming up, a rally in New York celebrating how 400 million people have quit the Chinese Communist Party, plus Beijing's military reaction to Pelosi's landmark visit to Taiwan. Hear more on that in just a minute here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. A new milestone for a grassroots organization that's helping people quit the Chinese Communist Party. At a rally, the organization announced that the number of people who've quit the CCP has reached 400 million. NTD's Jason Perry was there.
3: I'm here in Queens, New York at a rally, and they're celebrating reaching the milestone of 400 million people who have quit the Chinese Communist Party. To put that in perspective, that's about 70 more million people than the population of the United States. Now this number includes the Chinese Communist Youth League and the Young Pioneers, which almost all school-age children are forced to join. The movement to quit the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, began in 2004 after the Epoch Times published the nine commentaries on the Communist Party. It details the dark history of the CCP, including the Tiananmen Square massacre and the persecution of Falun Gong, also known as Falun Dafa, a spiritual practice based on truthfulness, compassion and forbearance. The organization is called the Global Service Center for Quitting the Chinese Communist Party. Millions of people have visited the website to disavow their affiliation to the CCP after learning of its atrocities and the tens of millions of people killed under its rule. Elmer Yuen, an activist and political commentator, shared how his family was affected by the CCP.
2: Uh, My mother is a Jehovah
0: Witness, and uh, she went to a work camp basically the same as a uh, working prison for 20 years. They say they'll let her go. If she denied God, uh, she refused. That's why she stayed for the whole term.
3: A local official also shared her thoughts.
0: People need freedom from being hurt, from just being controlled. I mean, everybody should live a good life. And having 400 million people behind you speaks for itself.
3: The president of the organization explained that some people quit the party using pseudonyms for safety reasons, and that the organization has a large team of auditors working 24 hours per day to audit the names of people who quit the CCP.
1: I hope more
4: Chinese people will quit the CCP and peaceful and free China will come up.
3: Many people have made the distinction that the CCP is not China, and that the Chinese people will be free after the communist regime falls. Jason Perry, NTD
0: News, New York. China has fired missiles into waters near Taiwan. It's part of Beijing's retaliation over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent visit to the island. But the Chinese regime has fallen short of pulling off what it threatened. Here's more.
4: China fired multiple missiles toward waters near Taiwan on Thursday in a military drill that some say simulates a blockade of the island. That's a day after a visit to the self-ruled islands by a top U.S. official, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. China's state broadcaster showed footage of multiple rounds fired. The Chinese regime declared that its missiles all precisely hit their targets, though Japan said five landed in its waters. The Chinese military's Eastern Theater Command said in a statement that the entire live fire training mission has been successfully completed and the relevant air and sea area control is now lifted. So far, Beijing has fallen short of pulling off what some pro-CCP commentators have threatened. Analysts have said that the drills are also geared towards domestic audiences. At the same time, the White House and State Department are urging the Chinese regime not to turn the situation into a crisis. We knew China
0: was going to uh, behave in this way. Uh, Again, it doesn't change our policy. Uh, We are going to monitor
4: and, uh, and we will manage what Beijing chooses to do. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a similar statement when he attended a meeting in Cambodia with his Southeast Asian counterparts.
2: And I want to emphasize, nothing has changed about our position. Uh, And I hope very much that uh, Beijing will not manufacture a crisis or seek a pretext to increase its aggressive military activity.
4: Taiwan scrambled jets and deployed missile systems to track the multiple Chinese aircraft crossing into its defense zone. The last time China fired missiles into the waters around Taiwan was in 1996. Taiwan officials say the drills violate United Nations rules, invade Taiwan's territory space and are a direct challenge to the free air and sea navigation. Its defense ministry said on Thursday, that the Taiwan military will remain alert and will react appropriately to what it called the enemy situation.
0: Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Cambodia's Prime Minister this week. Their talks came alongside the Association of Southeast Asian Nations Summit being held in the country. During their meeting, Blinken said the U.S. hopes to work with Cambodia on a number of global issues. Here's more on what they discussed.
5: U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told Cambodian Prime Minister Hun Sen that Washington wanted a strong, positive relationship between their two countries. He added that he's looking forward to talks on many issues and future cooperation. That was on Thursday on the sidelines of the ASEAN summit. The U.S. and Cambodia have had a frosty relationship in recent years. Washington has been strongly critical of Hun Sen's crackdown on political opposition and stayed wary of his engagement with Chinese military. Earlier this June, China and Cambodia broke ground on an upgrade to the Ream naval base in southern Cambodia. The project is Chinese-funded. Cambodia planned to use the grant for port renovation while concerns rise in the West that Beijing is seeking to use the project for military expansion in the region.
0: That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocus at We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching and see you tomorrow.
3: Presenting the heritage of traditional Chinese martial arts, promoting martial ethics, and reviving the true tradition. The 2022 NTD International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition Preliminaries will be held in New York and Taiwan. On August 28th, the finals will be broadcast live, online, worldwide. Registration hotline, one 884 779 For more information, please visit martialarts.ntdtv.com